from Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. This is an American Radio Works special report, Days of Infamy, December 7 and 9-11. Within the living memory of Americans are two deadly surprise attacks against the United States. In December 1941. Well, how did you feel about when you first heard about the Japanese war? And September 2001. Where were you and what were you doing when you found out about the attack on September 11? Both times, the Library of Congress sent out people to record the voices and thoughts of Americans. Every man around here is doing all they can to support this war effort. And I wear a flag pin I had in my drawer a long time. In the coming hour, the Pearl Harbor and 9-11 tapes. What they say about us and how we've changed. Days of Infamy from American Radio Works and the Center for Documentary Studies. First, the news. This is a special report from American Radio Works and the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Days of Infamy, December 7 and 9-11. I'm Deborah Amos. On September 11, 2001, terror came home to Americans like never before. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Four hijacked American planes crashed into New York City, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. An estimated 3,056 people died in the attacks, leaving Americans wondering if life could ever be the same. For some, 9-11 was reminiscent of another breach of U.S. territory, this one 60 years earlier. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked. President Franklin Roosevelt spoke to Congress and the nation the day after Japan's surprise attack that killed 2,400 Americans at the naval base at Pearl Harbor on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. That same day, Alan Lomax of the Library of Congress Archive of American Folk Song sent a telegram to a handful of colleagues scattered across the country, people accustomed to hauling around 100-pound Presto disc recording machines to capture traditional folk or blues music up close. One of them, Lomax's father John, was recording folk songs in Texas when he got the call. His first interview was with Lena Jameson, in Dallas. Mrs. Jameson, I've just got a telegram from the Library of Congress in Washington, and they want the ideas of a few average men and women recorded on their reactions when they heard of the Japanese aggression. Now, these records will be used in a historical record being accumulated in the Library of Congress and possibly for radio broadcasts. The Pearl Harbor tapes are now housed at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. The center's archive contains over 4,000 different collections, everything from the stories of ex-slaves to quilts from around the country to the songs of striking workers. The Pearl Harbor Collection contains 12 hours of interviews recorded all over the country, 
between December 8, 1941 and the following February. Most of these tapes have never been broadcast before. It was this collection that sparked an idea on September 12, 2001. That day, American Folklife Center employees came together for an impromptu meeting. Recall staff member Anne Hoog. We're all sitting around talking about what happened and talking about our, our experiences. And uh, I, I don't remember who it was that mentioned um, that, you know, gee, this sounds like our, our collections from 1941. And I said, you know, maybe we should do that today. Um, we could send uh, an email out to our colleagues and ask them to collect these same stories from people in their communities. In response to the September 12th email, some 500 librarians, historians, folklorists, and their students fanned out across America. Selections from these tapes also are being broadcast for the first time in this program. Today is September 16th, 2001. I'm Angie McAllister of Oregon, Wisconsin, here with Adil Mirza of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My name is Megan Eilbeck. It is September 20th, 2001. I am interviewing Andrea Harris. We're in a multicultural studies class at the University of Central Florida. This evening I'm interviewing Ron Lorbach in his home in San Diego, California. In the next hour, you'll hear the voices of Americans interviewed in the days and weeks following Pearl Harbor and September 11th. These two historic moments are different in important ways. But as producers Alana Hadler-Pearl and John Bewin discovered, these voices also reveal some striking changes in American life and American attitudes over these 60 years. During the hour, you'll also hear from a handful of prominent Americans who lived through both Pearl Harbor and 9-11. Longtime journalists Helen Thomas and Russell Baker Historian Roger Wilkins, Senator Daniel Inouye of Hawaii, writer Elizabeth Spencer, and folk singer Pete Seeger. In our first segment, getting the news of the attacks. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. We take you now to Washington. The details are not available. They will be in a few minutes. Let's take the Philippines tonight. What is your name? Uh, Norman Weissman. Uh, do you live in Washington? Yes, I live in Washington. Well, how did you feel about when you first heard the, about the Japanese war? Well, uh, may I felt well, I'll be called into the draft pretty soon. I'm eligible. I'm in one night classification, and it hit me pretty bad. Didn't expect it so soon. Well, I was surprised that it was so sudden. I think uh, Japan has an awful lot to lose by doing such a thing. Uh, what is it? Uh, are you uh, eligible for the uh, draft? Yes, too? I'm in the July draft. In the July. That's right. I expect to be called any week now. Are you the uh, lady friend? Or no. Could we interview you? <laughs> He's my no. friend, though. <laughs> your friend. What is your name? Could we have you? Dorothy Cotner. How did you feel when you first heard the news of the Japanese attack? Well, it really surprised me. And what do you what do you think's the job now to the United States? Well, I haven't heard much. I mean, I haven't read the papers much, and I've heard it over the radio. But I, they have signed. I mean, it, it's, there is war, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> it sure is. It's at 12:30 today. 
Dear Mr. President, I set me down to send you greetings from New York town. Send you the best wishes from all... My name is Pete Seeger. I've made a living for 60 years or more uh, singing old songs and new songs. It was Sunday here, and Woody Guthrie, he and I and Lee Hayes, we were having a hoot nanny, and in the middle of it, somebody burst in saying, hey, the Japs have bombed Pearl Harbor. I didn't even know where Pearl Harbor was. They said, don't you know it's the big Navy base in Hawaii? Aha, uh -huh. we were at war, finally. We could see it coming, but now it had, there was no turning back. Finally, finally, the pressure of the American nation was going to be put into fighting Hitlerism. Dear Mr. President, you're Commander-in-Chief of our armed forces, the ships, the planes, the tanks, the horses, and I guess you know best just where I can fight. I want to be just situated right to do the most damage. This is Paul L. Houston, President of the Yellow Cab Company of Pittsburgh. Everyone I talk to seems to feel that the old world we lived in before 19, December 7th, 1941 has passed out of existence. And we are in a whole new universe. My name is Helen Thomas, and I'm a columnist for Hearst Newspapers. I worked for UPI for more than 50 years. I was home in Detroit on December 7th. I was just a schoolgirl, and um, it was a tremendous shock. At the same time, it was not on, on the mainland here and so forth. It still had a sense of re being remote, but not really remote, because everybody, every family felt it at that time. The draft had been going on since 1940, and uh, there was the big, big debate going on in the country. The country was really split in terms of those who thought we ought to intervene in the war in Europe against Hitler, and those who thought we ought to stay out, still feeling the the burn of, uh, of World War I, which was the war to end all wars. I am Dr. James J. Terrell of Dallas, Texas. After I realized that the, the news was true, then the next realization was that I personally was at war. Not the country was at war, but that I was at war. That everything that I had and all that I could do should be devoted to the cause of uh, winning the war. History in every century records an act that lives forevermore. We'll recall as into line we fall the thing that happened on Hawaii shore. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we go to meet the foe. My name is Russell Baker. Uh, I've been a journalist for about 50 years. I wrote a column for the Times for oh, 35 to 40 years. Somebody yelled at me that they've attacked Pearl Harbor or something. It didn't mean much to me at that moment. I had a streetcar ride all the way from West Baltimore Street in Gilmore, and there was no discussion of it on the streetcar. Now, of course, everybody would have known it instantly. They'd be on cell phones. Uh, radios would be talking, Walkmans. And, but until I got to Irvington and got off the streetcar, I didn't know it had happened. And uh, I learned from uh, word of mouth somebody shouting at me in the street. Nobody told you what it meant. You know, there were no anchors. Uh, ABC's Peter Jennings is uh, at the anchor desk uh, uptown here in New York and is now in position. Peter, I suspect you are looking at exactly the same picture. It's another world as far as communications go. 
nothing happens these days until the anchors arrive on the scene. We are, Charlie. We've been watching it from the beginning. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll be watching this for much of the day. There is chaos in New York at the moment. There have been not one but two incidents, as Charlie and Diane have so ably reported so far. The second one coming at 9.03. When you see the anchors appear in the studio and they take off their jackets, you know, oh boy, something real has happened. <laughs> Question number one. Where were you and what were you doing when you found out about the attack on September 11th? I was actually on my way. I was on the Beltway, on my way to work. I was uh, at football practice, and the vice principal came out onto the football field. And I live five blocks north of the World Trade Center, and uh, I heard the first plane go by in my apartment. 1941. There's a couple places where people say, yeah, I was listening to the radio. That's basically it. But the September 11th personal experience stories, much more detail. You know, I was getting ready for work. I was in the shower and I came down, turned on the TV. I mean, almost everybody mentions the television. You know, everybody's just sort of bombarded with this information all day. I think to me it never hit home. It looked like a replay of Matrix or something to me. Yeah, you know? I thought it looked like, like Independence Day. Yeah. Seriously, it looked like Armageddon or, yeah. After a while, it quickly becomes entertainment. And I, at first it was like, it wasn't real, it was like a movie, like, you know, Pearl Harbor, like a movie, you know, the movie Pearl Harbor. I was like, it's just a movie, this isn't really going on. Jim and Colleen, back to you. Derek Hutley, thanks very much. Well, it is time for Jonathan Mann and release of his silhouette to step in and continue our coverage. We're going to leave you now with some pictures of the all-too-familiar scene, the, the horrific scene that was Tuesday, September the 11th. Stay with us. Holy shit! It's like you take your new tweed jacket to the cleaner and they soak it in all this chemical stuff. You know, and it takes all the life out of the fabric. That's what media do to uh, emotional events. A constant repetition takes all the life out of them. Holy shit! Great emotions such as was experienced by the country in last September and lasted into the campaign in Afghanistan. New events have taken it away. New entertainments have come up. You can't keep that kind of emotion alive against the competition of the entertainment aspect of media at a time when the rest of the country doesn't really feel threatened. Coming up, the aftermath of the attacks. The country moves from reaction to action. We'll look at how Pearl Harbor and September 11th each ignited its own flavor of patriotism and racism. I must say that I think we have been kicked into doing the thing that we should have done long, long ago, and everybody knows it. The matter of disciplining the unspeakable jazz. I'm Deborah Amos. You're listening to Days of Infamy, December 7 and 9-11, a co-production of the Center for Documentary Studies and American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is Days of Infamy, December 7 and 9-11, a special report from American Radio Works and the Center for Documentary Studies. I'm Deborah Amos. After the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, Americans joined in a spirit of patriotic mission. 
At the same time, anger, fear, and racial attitudes contributed to the U.S. government's decision to round up Japanese Americans living on the West Coast and put them in internment camps. Some observers say they've seen echoes of both that patriotism and that intolerance since the terrorist attacks of September 2001. But the voices of ordinary people recorded for the Library of Congress shortly after Pearl Harbor and after 9-11 suggest American patriotism and racism are not what they used to be. This tape is being made for the Library of Congress's 911 project. My name is Dick Stahl. I live in Davenport, Iowa, and today's date is Sunday, October 21st, 2001. I would like to read a poem. The title of my poem is After September 11th, 2001. My American heart's crowded these days the red, white, and blue candles that host the flames of hope, the songs about old glory that wave with thunderous snaps of patriotism. I guess everyone takes it for granted, the protection and the security that we have here. And I know the United States is so much different than like all the other, many other countries around the world. And um, it's given me more appreciation for, you know, how good we have it here. There's nothing like a crisis sometimes to, to draw the best in people. Folk singer Pete Seeger. I've seen more good things happening in America since 9-11 than almost in all my life, even World War II. It didn't seem to pull the country together as well as this terrible and inexcusable uh, terrorist act. And on we come together Stronger than ever you made the eagle fly Screaming out a battle cry This is America I'm all for war, pretty much. I think we need to strike back ten times harder than they struck us. That's how I feel. And if we're going to be the bullies on the block, why not act like the bullies on the block? I mean, just do what we got to do, like President Bush said. That's my whole family. I'm uh, Roger Wilkins, and I teach history at George Mason University. I was a presidential appointee in the administration of Lyndon B. Johnson and um, an assistant attorney general in the Department of Justice. I don't really think that patriotism at this time should be measured in how bellicose we can be, in how colorfully we can describe the people that we are opposed to. One of the great aspects of our nation is that we can speak freely about public affairs, that that is one of the great duties of a citizen. That kind of show of patriotism is what is required here. It's, it's, it's much more subtle, it's much more nuanced than the just, they hit us and now let's mobilize and go hit them kind of patriotism that was called for in 1941 and 42. I really feel privileged to live in the U.S. because we're you know, we're so well off, but I'm not necessarily proud to be an American. I've traveled enough overseas to know that it's not exactly the best, <laughs> the thing to be super proud of. We sleep so easily, burn the oil like it's free, watch the war on TV. 
Americans are better educated now than about the world scene than they were in uh, 1940. Journalist Russell Baker. Well, there are people who know that there are people out there with serious grievances uh, against us that hate us. Whereas in 1940, uh, uh, there was not much knowledge of the world. We had no notion of how the world looked at us. This needs to be a point of introspection to kind of understand how this all came about and maybe how some of our own uh, iniquities in the past have kind of come up and blown up in our face. Maybe the chickens have come home to roost. I'm completely against what happened, and I, and I really wish to the, to the bottom of my heart that it did not happen. But there's reasons why it happened, and the United States should be aware of the fact that I think this might happen again so long as our policy toward the Middle East doesn't change. We're just discussing how people feel about the war now that the emergency is declared, what they people are saying, how you yourself feel about it. I, I think it's a wonderful thing because I'm behind Mr. Roosevelt 100%. In 19, late 1941, um, the world was at war, and the events of December 7th propelled us into that war. And people were, were able to accept President Roosevelt when he said, well, I was uh, doctor fix the economy, but now we've got to change and be doctor win the war. Nobody disagreed with that because the effort was so massive. The threat was so great and so real. My name is Frank Tatry, and I do clerical work. I listen to President Roosevelt's speech, and I am behind him 100%. Mr. Russell, you have a son in the Navy. What is your attitude toward the war? <clears throat> My attitude uh, towards the war is 100%, see? I mean, it was transforming. It was my country, may she always be right, but my country right or wrong. Journalist Helen Thomas. The country was divided, a real, beforehand. I and mean, people like uh, Vandenberg from Michigan, a senator who was an isolationist and absolutely turned into an internationalist, and so many who really changed their political views. It was, in that sense, cataclysmic. Oh, the Martins and the Coys have quit their feuding. They don't live in West Virginia anymore. You won't never find them in cause they're headed for Berlin and they're fighting in a different kind of war. Lindbergh had been uh, against going to war. Important people, uh, great voices in the Senate. The Senate had resisted any armament for years. It, uh, they were just not going to have it. And suddenly, with Pearl Harbor, that collapsed, and everybody uh, was in the same boat. That was a, an extraordinary thing politically. Still, it, looking back on it, you, you know, you're never going to see that kind of unity again, I think, on a, on a political issue as great as that. Not until a few days later did the full impact of Pearl Harbor strike me. Lethargy has developed into patriotism and eagerness to help. My name is Chesterfield White. I am just about to enter the armed forces of America. I am fighting to help preserve democracy and to beat the Axis power. The American way of life is so dear to me and to every American. We're gonna have to slap the dirty little Jap and Uncle Sam the guy who can do it. My name is Daniel K. Inouye. I'm a United States Senator from the state of Hawaii. 
On December 7, 1941, uh, it was a Sunday, and I was getting ready to go to church with the rest of the family and listening to the radio at the same time, and all of a sudden the disc jockey began screaming into his mic, telling the listeners that uh, Pearl Harbor was being bombed and devastated. And so I grabbed hold of my father, and we went out into the street, looked westward towards Pearl Harbor, and sure enough, the skies were filled with puffs of anti-aircraft shells exploding. And suddenly, three fighter planes flew overhead, and I knew what had happened. It was one of the darkest moments in my life, because those men who were piloting the plane very likely looked like someone like me. That leads me <laughs> to the next question. Do you hate the Japs? No, I, I don't hate anyone. Do you but, hate uh, the Japanese, dislike the Japanese people? I don't dislike the people. I dislike the way they do things so often. <laughs> you think that's a racial characteristic? Yes. It was a race war against Japan. The Japanese were so alien to us. Outside of California, most people, in Americans, had never seen a Japanese. It was their, they were creatures from that other planet, you know, far away. And I don't think that we kids in Harlem were much different. I don't think that we somehow, because we were not white, we felt any affinity to the, for the Japanese. Uh, on the contrary, I think we thought they were fiends just the way the white people thought they were fiends. Because we might have been black, but we sure as heck were Americans, and we were involved with American culture. An unmarried secretary presents her opinion. I must say that I think we have been kicked into doing the thing that we should have done long, long ago, and everybody knows it, the matter of disciplining the unspeakable Jap. We have said, now, Jappy, you be a nice boy, and we'll give you a gun that you can shoot real bullets with, and now, dear little Jappy has kicked teacher in the shins, and something must be done about it. So I'm all for doing a complete and entire job. I do not think all Japanese are evil because we have nothing against most of them. But it is said that Japanese is treacherous. And as long as they are, we've got to watch our step. In February of 1942, the United States government, through the president, issued Executive Order 9066, in which the United States Army was authorized to build 10 concentration camps to house Japanese citizens and otherwise living along the west coast of the United States. And uh, there were about 120,000 of them. They were given 48 hours uh, when time came to move. The only thing they could carry was what they carried with them. All other things had to be disposed somehow. It was not a happy time. It's not really possible to determine what it cost these people, but the cost to their lives, to their psyche, to their future was much greater than the loss of material things. We struggle in this generation Triumphantly New York City Won't you help me sing all right, the date is September 27th. I'm John Cowan. I'm interviewing Josh Pate. What do you think about the backlash against Arabic people in this country? I don't think that that's right. 
it wasn't just because they were Arabic that they did it. It was people who did it, just like us. It was just the color of their skin. It was just a certain type of person that tried to do it. It doesn't mean everyone's going to. Who do you believe is responsible for these attacks? I guess Osama bin Laden is the one that... He's a camel humper. <laughs> there were a few hate crimes early on. Historian Roger Wilkins. And I'm sure there were people who were pretty ugly. I'm sure there, there has been some, but I think there's been far less than we might have expected considering the nature of uh, the murderous attacks that occurred on September 11. I used to think that uh, Americans uh, weren't really more tolerant, uh, but they had just for uh, social reasons uh, uh, learned how to suppress their prejudices, to not uh, speak them out in the open. But I suspect now that uh, Americans really are more tolerant. It's a much more tolerant society. And... Uh, I think you see that with the attitude toward the Islamic people now in the United States. Yeah, I think we are a better... I mean, after all, we went through the civil rights movement, we went through a women's movement, a gay and lesbian movement, we went through a deeper awareness of uh, the needs and the oppression of Native Americans and uh, Hispanic Americans. So all of that has made us a more mature people than we were back in 1941. I'm Anita Chavla. I'm originally from, uh, well, my family's from India, and I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and, and now I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And I've become much more self-conscious and aware of being a minority. You know, my mother lives with us, and I, sure, I've explained to her what I can has happened and encouraged her not to wear her sarvala kameej, her Indian clothes outside when she goes out. and. Sometimes I feel people looking at me, and I'm not sure why. We're in a fight for our principles, and our first responsibility is to live by them. No one should be singled out for unfair treatment or unkind words because of their ethnic background or religious faith. In the case of uh, 9-11, within a week after that, the President of the United States uh, issued a statement uh, assuring the people that this was a war against terrorists and not against any group of people. Senator Daniel Inouye. And he specifically said it is not against the Muslims. Now, that's a vast difference from the issuance of an executive order that authorized the army to build 10 concentration camps. Do you feel that the terrorism and subsequent war have negatively impacted Arab Americans in this country? The more that you learn about their religion and stuff like that, you find out that it doesn't have anything to do with what the extremists believe, that it's just a really small group of them, and they're basically pushing this, they're pushing an image on Arabs. That's not true. Well, this country's always been called a melting pot. I don't think it's a melting pot at all. I think it's a big bottle of oil and vinegar and water, and there's all these different layers. But what the funny thing is, you stir it up, it blends pretty good. We're stirred up real well right now. We're blending up pretty nice. I mean, I have my own prejudices and I'm willing to overlook them right now. That's just the way everybody is. Um, it's human nature. On the last day, for the last time, we never even knew what was really happening here. Uh, they did a poll about whether it would be a good idea to do racial profiling against uh, Arab Americans and the people who were 
most in favor of doing that were African Americans. And people came to me and said, well, what do you, how do you explain that? And uh, I said, I don't have any deep explanation. I can only say that that's that uh, natural human instinct, better him than me. Let's face it, the most hated enemy we've ever had in our history were the Japanese. But today, uh, our two nations are on good terms. But um, one of the unfortunate curses of mankind has been hatred and racism. And I suppose in many of us, if not all of us, there is some tinge of that. And we should make an effort to make certain that that slight evil within all of us uh, are kept down. I'm Deborah Amos. Coming up, more tape from the Pearl Harbor and 9-11 audio collections. Ordinary Americans face a world war. Every man around here is doing all they can to support this war effort by buying the defense stamps and bonds. But we want you to know that. And a war on terror. I know George Bush has said we're at war and we must be careful and observant and everything like that. But, you know, there's really nothing to do. Days of Infamy is part of Public Radio's special coverage, Understanding America After 9-11, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major funding for American Radio Works is also provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional funding for this report is provided by the Michael and Laura Brader Arahe Foundation. This program is a co-production of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and American Radio Works. There's much more about Pearl Harbor and September 11th on our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll find slideshows, audio clips, links, and more information about the Library of Congress audio collections. You can also find an archive of American Radio Works documentaries and learn how to order a cassette copy of this program. That's AmericanRadioWorks.org. You're listening to Days of Infamy, December 7 and 9-11, a special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is Days of Infamy, December 7 and 9-11, a special report from American Radio Works and the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. I'm Deborah Amos. We've been listening to two sets of interviews with Americans collected by the Library of Congress. One set of interviews was recorded right after Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941. A group of folklorists across the country used the heavy recorders of the day to print the voices of Americans on discs of aluminum and glass. In the fall of 2001, folklorists and students went out with amateur recorders or set up tape machines in public libraries and asked people to record their thoughts about 9-11 on cassette tape. These audio collections reveal important differences between Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and deep changes in American society. 
In our final segment, two very different wars. President Franklin Roosevelt spoke to Congress and the nation on December 8, 1941, the day after the Japanese raid on Pearl Harbor. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. Americans knew that the war already raging in Asia and Europe was now a world war, and they were in it. After the September 11th terrorist attacks, the United States declared a war on terror. Americans wondered how this war would alter their lives. More now from those two audio collections, interviews with Americans after Pearl Harbor and in the fall of 2001. This is Buffalo, New York speaking, telling what we think of the Japanese aggression. These interviews are recorded for the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., through the facilities of WBEN, the Buffalo Evening News Station. This is Tim Sullivan, age 35. And you feel, Mr. Sullivan, that uh, it'll be a long war? Yes, I do. Uh, how does your family feel about it, your wife? Uh, your home? Well, I suppose the same as every other family. It has children in it. They're all fearful of what may happen to the children if we should lose this war. And you recognize that as a distinct possibility? That's right. We're all out to protect our home and our loved ones. This is the Army, Mr. Jones. No private rooms or telephones. Well, Miss Whitaker, what do you think about the Japanese attack on Hawaii Sunday? Well, it's uh, nothing more than what to be expected. And in other words, it's inevitable. And I'm glad to say that I have one son in the Army and that he's patriotic enough and I have that Christian spirit in me to give our son for the cause, and I'm glad I did it. When you say war, you immediately think of sacrifice. The former New York Times columnist, Russell Baker. Maybe that's just my World War II experience, but you know, you may have to sacrifice your life. But you, if not your life, then there's gonna be hardship. You're gonna have to pay more taxes to support the thing. It's gonna be hard to buy thing, luxury goods. You couldn't buy tires in World War II because uh, the Japanese had, had captured the rubber sources. Uh, women couldn't buy silk stockings anymore. I am Nota Scholl, a secretary at Bloomington, Indiana. Of course, we are taking a little more from our monthly paychecks for cosmetics, hose, food, and so on. And we miss not being able to get the paper clips, bobby pins, and other commodities which we have taken for granted. But these inconveniences are unimportant when compared with the hurt which comes when we watch our friends board trains bound for we know not what destination. They're doing all they can. Every man around here is doing all they can to support this war effort by buying the defense stamps and bonds. Well, we want you to know that. We have gathered paper tin and tinfoil. We cannot all win a congressional medal for bravery, but we, the students of Crane, Missouri, would like to 
Earn our V for victory. The commandeering of the railroads. My father is a railroader, and I'm sure that uh, he and, and any of his other workers wouldn't mind to, uh, for the railroads to be commandeered. I think the government uh, uh, had better withdraw all of this uh, money they're paying to farmers and ranchmen and put it into bombs, put it into dynamite. And uh, so we can uh, blow daylight uh, through more Germans and Japs. We don't need any subsidies anymore. So it was a time of hardship and sacrifice, and and people who were not enduring hardship and sacrifice or even complaining about it were looked down on. We were all being good soldiers. My name is James Cavanaugh. I'm 27 years old and presently employed as a clerk in a college in New York. I'm not too eager to go. I had planned to use the next few years to advance myself economically and academically, but that seems to be out of the question. However, I feel that I can't be too concerned with what happens to me as an individual. More important, I realize, are the things that our government and country stands for. And so, when it comes my turn, I'll go willingly. What do you think about war, Miss Curry? Especially with Japan. Well, I think war is horrible with anybody, any time. Mm -hmm. Now, that's just exactly what I think about war. Would you be willing for your son to go across the ocean? Fight? Why? Might as well to be. If they want him, they'll take him anyway. So I might as well just be willing to it. Mm -hmm. Of course, there ain't nobody willing, but... No, I don't anybody want to see it, of course. No. The time's got to come, it's got to come. Yeah. Attack on America. Good evening on a day of remembrance and renewed resolve. This is the end of a long, difficult week, but just the beginning of a long, difficult war to come. My name is Joshua Hogue. I live in Solon, Iowa. I am 14 years old. What do you think the U.S. should do now? The covert op full-fledged war. Bombing first, and then tank and troop advancement into Afghanistan and air backup and helicopter support. This is not something that requires the mobilization, the full mobilization of, of American resources as uh, World War II did. Historian Roger Wilkins. It is not a situation where there is broad-scale shared sacrifice as there was in World War II. Uh, I don't see anybody who, these days who goes around with a sense of being at war. We have a professional army now. The citizens are not involved in this war. Every once in a while the president and his people say, reminds us, or at least they say we're at war, but are we at war? It doesn't feel like war to me. I don't think the world's going to be affected, for very long at least. And I think the U.S. will forget about it for the most part. You know, it'll, it'll be like a slightly longer version of the Oklahoma City bombing. Has your life changed at all? Not really. Not, not that I can think of. There hasn't been a lick of 
of change in, in people's lives right here. Mm-hmm. Small town, you know, you know, every, everyone can feel that we're not targets. Mm-hmm. There's not a draft on. In this so-called war, everyone is silent, but you don't really feel that the spirit is there, the same sense of mission. Journalist Helen Thomas. It's uh, individualistic, it's self-protection. I, I don't, nothing wrong with that. We all want to live. But you don't have this same kind of binding the wounds and rallying together and so forth. My name is Sue Kloss, and I'm a biology instructor at Lake Tahoe Community College. What I think we should do is get the hell out of the Middle East completely, develop alternative energy sources, retrain workers in the oil industry, have the oil companies figure out how to make money from alternative energies, do a good thing for the world environmentally. Americans are asking, what is expected of us? I ask you to live your lives and hug your children. Well, I'm a writer from Mississippi originally. My name's Elizabeth Spencer. I know George Bush has said we're at war and we must be careful and observant and everything like that. But, you know, there's really nothing to do. We were asked to keep traveling, go on vacation, spend more money to keep business booming and so forth. It was just the opposite of what you would expect to be asked to do in case of a real war. And on top of it all, you were to accept a generous tax cut. I bought flags for my home and office, and I wear a flag pin I had in my drawer a long time. I attached a keychain to my keys that says, I love New York. Those are the tangible things that I could do. I purchased enough ribbons for all the bank employees, a little over 70, um, within a few days after the tragedy. The uh, local uh, Walmart store was making them up. I made a conscious effort to be healthier. I mean, I, I bought bi- vitamins <laughs> <laughs> so that I could be stronger. Mm-hmm. You don't have a feeling that you're sharing. The last time everybody was in it. Once it happened, that was it. You know, there was no no ifs, ands, or buts. And there aren't any today, but there's also nothing that connects us. But maybe it's what our society has become, which is high-tech, robotic, dehumanized. Uh, we have a more modern world that uh, we're more disaffected. I'm rather proud of Americans. When we get aroused, we can do tremendous things. But so far, people haven't wanted to get that aroused. You know, we don't feel threatened enough to make us shift into high gear. We're just kind of coasting. It's change, and change is always happening, and it's just another facet of my life in the world and 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 the time not necessarily everyone says the times that we live in yeah these are the times I live in but I also live before and I'm gonna live into the future and I I just expect everything to keep changing so it doesn't affect me too profoundly I think we're gradually returning maybe dangerously so to normal among average people but we probably wanted that after Pearl Harbor but we knew we couldn't so would we're challenged deeply challenged, we'll do what we have to do. But we don't want to do it. Uh, Mr. Sullivan, what do you think about the American people? Do you think we're ready for this? Well, your honest opinion. We've never been ready for anything, but we've always been able to meet it. Do you think we'll meet this? 
I do. This is Deborah Amos. Judging from the Library of Congress tapes, Americans like to think that attacks from outside will make us better as a people, will force us to get our priorities straight, whatever each of us means by that. You hear it in the recordings made 60 years ago after Pearl Harbor. Heavy burdens, such as we all must bear, seem to bring out the best in us. We seem to appreciate the real things in life, such as our homes and our families. And you hear it even more from Americans taped after September 11th. I think the long-lasting change will be emotional, that we, I think we will be a more cautious, and maybe a little bit more sober people after this. Sucks to say, but I'm kind of glad it happened, because it kind of put fear back into our country, not thinking we can just bully everyone around and no one's ever going to bomb us or hurt us, you know. But saying that, I mean, it sucks people had to lose their lives for it to come to that, you know. We had been sinking into a sea of, of trivia and nonsense and tearing each other apart over stupid things like Republicans and Democrats and watching terrible television shows like Survivor. And I think this is really pulled, starting to pull people together and just reminding them of what's really important in life. How do you think this event will change your life in our country? It'll definitely be in the history books. Like when I get older and have kids and all that stuff, they're going to be probably sitting here and writing reports on it and looking back at what happened and probably listening to this tape. Yeah. <laughs> but I just hope that we can remain peaceful with each other um, here in the United States and that it doesn't become a religious war because I don't believe that's what it is. And I also don't believe that a few people should have the right to destroy the security and the freedoms of the many. And thank you for letting us share this oral history. I hope that it helps in the future. Thank you. Days of Infamy, December 7 and 9-11, was produced by Ilana Hedler-Pearl of the Center for Documentary Studies and John Bewin of American Radio Works. The editor is Deborah George. Coordinating producer, Sasha Eslanian. Mixing help from Craig Thorson and Tom Mudge. Project coordinator, Misha Quill. Special thanks to Anne Hoog of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. The managing editor of American Radio Works is Stephen Smith. The executive producer is Bill Busenberg. I'm Deborah Amos. Days of Infamy is a co-production of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and American Radio Works. It is part of Public Radio's special coverage, Understanding America After 9-11, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major funding for American Radio Works is also provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional funding for this report was provided by the Michael and Laura Brader Arahe Foundation on the web at b-a.org. American Radio Works is the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. This is NPR, National Public Radio.